Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey, hey, it is that time again from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos, politics junkie, reporter, and analyst. analyst, <laughs> yakety yacker. That's what I do, too. <laughs> I'm Scott Schaefer, senior politics editor around here. And tonight on The Breakdown, we have Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg. He's here to talk with us about homelessness. We're focusing on that issue all week here at KQED. And along with our other media partners doing the same, but, uh, you know, trying to shine a little light on that problem that seems to be getting worse in a lot of cities. That's right. Steinberg was the leader of the state Senate before winning the mayor's seat a few years ago. Um, he has made mental health and homelessness an issue really throughout his career. Time. So yeah. it's going to be an interesting conversation. But, of course, that's not all. That's not all. <laughs> and ironically, well, today was a crazy whirlwind day up in Sacramento. Not expectedly entirely, that today was the last day to finalize the ballot for November ballot measures, and there was a whole lot of horse trading going on. Ballot measures coming and going. Uh, The governor signed a piece of legislation that put daylight savings time uh, on the ballot, and a couple of other things got pulled back, and largely because of some legislation from 2014 that Daryl Steinberg authored to allow that kind of thing to happen. We'll talk to them about that, but uh, wow. Yeah, I think the details, I mean, you know, we did a special edition last night of Political Break, or Wednesday night of Political Breakdown on uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy's retirement. I feel like there's been so much attention on D.C. and the border um, that some of this stuff has not been as probably vetted as we would like to in our job. Um, So one of the big changes that you referred to was this legislation a few years ago that basically let people uh, gave proponents of ballot measures a longer window to pull back their legislation, their proposed legislation. And um, today we had two measures that basically were taken off the ballot in exchange for very quick laws being passed and signed. Um, One of those was a privacy ballot measure. This got a lot of attention after the Facebook uh, Cambridge Analytica Uh, flap and all of these data breaches. Um, and so I have a, a cut here I want to play from Senator Bob Hertzberg of Los Angeles, who was at a press conference saying, we passed this. Now you guys got to pull this off of the ballot. Did you file that document yet with this thing with the Secretary of State? We got to file that damn thing. We got the bill all signed. We got to file that damn thing. We're talking about this thing. It's 255. We got two hours and five minutes. And they did file it. <laughs> they they did. walked right down the hallway and filed it. So it is off the ballot. Although, you know, it didn't make everybody happy. I think it's, you know, it's interesting. I think that the intent of the legislation, we'll talk with the author in a minute, 
is good because I think personally, I think that uh, the legislative process is a better way to craft these things because the ballot is such a blunt instrument and the only way you can change it is to go back to the voters. However, some of the big privacy advocates, ACLU, uh, not happy about uh, this compromise that got signed by the governor today. Yeah, and I think we should explain what this does, right? This would let folks starting in 2020 basically ask big companies for what data they're collecting. It would let people say basically erase that data, do not sell it. It would require an opt-in for kids. So children under 16's data would have to be approved by their parents or uh, if they're 13 to 16, them before it can even be used by these companies. And I think that, um, you know, there's still questions. And to your point about the blunt instrument, that's what everyone was saying today was that, look, this is a start. We will get this ballot measure off. The ballot measure, by the way, would have required 70% of the legislature to sign off on any changes to it which was a big concern because this is a moving area of the law. Facebook, even though it's so ubiquitous, has not been around for that long. Yeah, but all the more reason not to do it through the ballot so that exactly. you can change it more So easily. I think we'll see actually some follow-up legislation as soon as August on that one. But the other one that's caused a little bit more flap, you want to fill yeah, us in well, on that? Yeah, well, so that one had to do was pushed by the beverage industry, the sugary beverage industry, soda industry, and it would have not only put a moratorium on uh, the ability to enact any new taxes on soda, it also would have up to the, the threshold for passing local revenue from a 50% plus one to two-thirds vote. This had all kinds of local officials in a panic uh, because it would have put them in a fiscal straitjacket, really. And, and it, as it turned out, that other part was sort of the, the bargaining chip. That's what got everybody Well, I'm not actually sure the that table. there was anything in, in there about soda taxes. This just went after all taxes, all taxes right? This grocery, said, grocery taxes. Gro- well, the, the compromise, the actual ballot measure would have just said, if you want to pass any tax increase at the local level, it needs a two-thirds majority. And initially, I think it was passed by a slightly different, or pushed by a slightly different coalition. But in the end, the, the beverage industry was the ones who were really- That was really what they were concerned about. Funding this, exactly. And so what happened was um, a piece of legislation that now prohibits local jurisdictions from enacting new soda taxes for the next 12 years. Um, And it was passed pretty overwhelmingly, but it was a sort of hilarious debate on the floor today. A lot of people holding their noses and voting for it. Lawmakers kind of twisted themselves (laughs) into all kinds of contortions to explain why they're voting for it. And our awesome producer, Guy, put together a little montage of what some of these lawmakers said. This is a pick-your-poison kind of situation, a Sophie's choice, if you will. A very cynical, opportunistic use of our ballot measure process. The legislature was put in an untenable situation. This is definitely one of the toughest votes I'm going to have to take. Another example of how special interests hijack our political system. And ultimately, they did pass that. The governor did sign it. It will not be on the ballot. It got pulled. Um, But I think this is not an issue that's going to go away. And, you know, obviously, they cut a deal in good faith. So I don't think we're going to see any end run around this in the future. But to your earlier point, this is now legislation. So it could change. It could be changed. It could be changed. And I think it's, you know, maybe to a certain extent, an unintended consequence or an unforeseen consequence of this ability to negotiate the the basic uh, intention of a ballot measure and get it off the ballot through through legislation. I'm not sure people necessarily knew that it would it would come to this where you actually have kind of a almost an extortion or a hostage situation, uh, you know, forcing the legislature to act on something that they never would have passed otherwise. Right. On the flip side, on the privacy one, you could say 
you could argue that that's a good thing because this is a hot button issue that impacts a lot of very big political donors like AT&T and Comcast and Google and Facebook. And I think lawmakers didn't want to touch that before and they were kind of forced to. Well, and also, you know, we have the Janus decision this week that's going to clip the wings of uh, labor unions. Unions weren't so much involved in these particular uh, well, the soda measures. one. Well, were. the soda one to a certain extent, yeah. And I think it was a way to sort of maybe save some money. You know. Oh yeah, I think that was have. a big part of that soda deal, which yeah. we will ask the mayor about in a second. Um, but quickly, we should just also say that. Um, in addition to daylight savings being on the ballot, we will be uh, looking at a gas tax. We will not be voting a repeal. Uh, repeal of the gas tax. We will not be voting on a criminal justice reform measure that I've been tracking, which would really roll back a lot of the reforms that Governor Brown and others have championed. Interestingly, he would have probably spent a lot of that $15 million he has in his bank account to 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 kill that. And I, my, we're, my guess is now he'll use that to stop the repeal of the gas tax. But we'll see. I totally agree. Well, let's get to the mayor. Yeah, let's get we're to We're going to take huh? a short break. And after that break, we will be joined by Daryl Steinberg, the mayor of Sacramento. Stay with us. You are listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And we are back with this week's edition of Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer, along with Marisa Lagos. And we are joined now by Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg. He's a former state Senate leader and generally known as a nice guy in an area where not everyone is. Daryl Steinberg, welcome to The Breakdown. Marisa and Scott, thank you so much for having me. Thanks it's great for coming to be down. With you. Oh, this is fun. This is great. I loved your initial segment, too. You, you know, it just brought back a lot of memories. <laughs> some PTSD, some warm, <laughs> well, a little, ones. Some, you know, mostly good. A few, uh, you know, not so good memories, but mostly good. Well, we'll get to some of uh, what you did in the, the Senate um, more broadly, but I think we want to talk about this legislation that you had pushed to sort of allow for this negotiating process around ballot measures. Um I mean, is this what you expected to be seeing? It's actually exactly what I expected. Um, and I, I always go into the discussion admitting that everything is imperfect because it's democracy and it's messy. And those who want perfection, they ought to look elsewhere. So, But it, that what happened today was actually exactly what I intended for this reason. Look, at when initiatives are written and submitted prior to my law, there's no turning back. 
those initiatives are on the ballot. So let's take the beverage uh, issue for a moment. Had there not been this outlet, why wouldn't the sponsors of that initiative that would have wiped out a majority vote authority for local governments gone forward? They probably would have. And then uh, there would have been a bloody fight that would have made voters even more cynical at great risk to local governments. Now, because of the law that I authored and passed, there's an outlet later in the process, June 28th. They could make a decision to withdraw it if they could work something out with the legislature. But did you you anticipate, though, what they did in this particular case, whereas they came forward and got the signatures for a pretty extreme measure, what would Jerry Brown called today an abomination if it had uh, if it had passed. I mean, did you anticipate that? Well, I I probably didn't anticipate that initiative proponents would necessarily load up their initiatives. But remember that nothing forces the legislature nor the opposition to the initiative to negotiate. If it's that bad, and I thought that initiative was bad, by the way, then you can fight it and defeat it. That's that's an option as well. So it still remains the choice of the parties. But before my law, there was no choice. Once the signatures are submitted, there's no really no ro- there's really no role for the legislature. No turning back. Now there is. I think on balance that that's a a good and healthy thing. And as a mayor of uh, a growing city, I'm just pleased that that initiative does not put my city at risk and. It would, would, would have put us at risk of a $50 million budget hole and lay off a police officer and fire, uh, and fire personnel, but um, it didn't happen. So imperfect, but the right result. Sometimes, you know, the most important thing you can do is avoid a worse result. That's I'm curious, you know, because there were other things that could have been done in terms of reforming California's direct democracy system. For example, some states have an automatic sunset of things that pass, and then they have to get revisited after five years. Or, you know, I'm just wondering, were there other things? I mean, was this the most important reform that you felt? was? It was. I mean, we looked at all of that, including the sunset provision. But what we really did was bring back what existed in California prior to, I believe, 1962. It was the indirect initiative, where um, under the old, old law, there were outlets for the legislature uh, and the initiative proponents to work together. And really, when you step back and look at it, the problem in California, people love the initiative process. But there's also frustration because in some ways it is owned by a lot of the moneyed special interests on both sides. And the best result is usually accomplished when two sources of power, the initiative some call it the initiative industrial complex, (laughs) and the representative democracy, the legislature, have an incentive to actually work together and to make a a better product to try to solve whatever problem they're trying to solve. And I think, again, imperfect, but I think... An improvement. An improvement. And as I said, it has sort of forced the legislature's hand to take up issues they might want to just not deal with. That's exactly right. The legislature could often ignore issues because, oh, that's being dealt with in the initiative process. Well, now, you know, there's pressure, more pressure, positive pressure to actually try to solve a problem. The privacy bill is a good example. Um, that's That's a compelling issue. The legislation may uh, have required compromise on both sides, but better a negotiated solution than an initiative. So, um, well, let's move on. And uh, before we but get this to... this was such a great topic. No, I mean, but there's so much to talk about. <laughs> okay. um, and, I, and we do like to sort of 
let our listeners know a little bit more about the people that, you know, they're listening to. And um, so I know you grew up in Millbrae. You're the oldest of three boys. Yes, I am. And uh, I hear you were an athletic kid, a high school class president. I was I was all of that. I can't say that I was a good athlete, but I was an athlete. <laughs> Would you play? I, was, I, was, I played uh, th- the three sports, baseball, uh, foot, flag football, and basketball. And then I took up tennis and became a competitive tournament tennis player. Gave it up for 35 years after I left high school. And when I left the Senate... I needed an outlet, so I've become a competitive tennis player. Wow. Again. Wow. Love the game. Yeah. Well, when I lived in Sacramento in your neighborhood of the pocket, we used to run into each other at the gym all the time. We used to run into – exactly right. So now I now I have a different outlet, but uh, – <laughs> uh, so, competitive. You, so you're mayor now. Yeah. Um, obviously, you were in the legislature for many years. You're also on the city council. I started on the city council. I served uh, six years and 14 years in the legislature, the first Sacramento to be – president of the Senate in 125 years. I drew the short straw, as you know, because I took over during the toughest economic time in modern history. I take great pride in the fact that I was part of helping lead the state through the terrible recession, tough decisions. And I decided when I termed out that um, I love my city. It's a growing, emerging city. Just past 500,000, I think. We just passed 500,000. And we're, we're trying to reimagine ourselves as other than just a government town hmm. and uh, and just a capital city. And so it's an exciting time, and I thought, I still have it in me. Why not? I mean, it seems to me like you came at this a whole politics thing uh, so, sort of from a public service perspective. I know that um, your family growing up was very active in the synagogue, and you, your family remains so now. Is that kind of the lens through which you see it? Because I mentioned earlier that, you know, you're known as a nice person, and maybe for people who don't know, like, like when I brought up the gym thing, for example, you always wanted to chat with a reporter at the gym at 6 in the morning, <laughs> which is not usual well, for a politician. Well, well, I was trying to get my story out. <laughs> Well, here you go. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, I have two brothers. Uh, One is a rabbi, and the other leads a civil rights project called Sojourn to the Past. He takes high school students on week-long sojourns of the civil rights movement out of the Bay Area, my brother Jeff. How neat. It's a little plug, I guess. But anyways, (laughs) we, um, I I guess, I grew up with Jewish values. Um, You know, they call it tikkun olam, and they're not... Uh, their values that, uh, of course, are part of every other faith and every other belief as well. Uh, but I, I was raised uh, to believe that, um, you know, you drive a lot of meaning in life by doing your very best to help other people. And, you know, um, and I've been very fortunate. And, you know, the nice guy label is something I've always lived with. And, and you know, people say, how can you be a nice guy in politics? And I talk to young people all the time. And I tell them there is no conflict between being good and nice to other people and being tough and principled. You can be both. And um, I can be plenty uh, tough when I need to be. But I tell you, you get a lot more done in this world if you work well with other people. Well, and why be nasty? Like, why that be doesn't nasty? get you anywhere. And it's, you know, you get to, now I'm in my late 50s. You get to that, you know, life is short stages, yeah. right? I'd rather... Well, it comes back to haunt you, too, sometimes. Of course you know, it does. Car- karma payback. is real. Yeah, yeah, we're waiting for that in Washington. But... <laughs> well, they, you know, God, none, none too soon. I didn't say that. None too soon. I want to ask you about homelessness. Yes, please. Uh, because we have been focusing on that here with our some of our media partners this week. And you were one, I think you were the chair of this uh, Big 11 chair city Big mayors uh, yes. that lobbied Sacramento for state funding for homelessness. And, you know, I'm wondering, you know, how, how do you experience it as mayor? in Sacramento. I mean, obviously it's a problem here in San Francisco. L.A. has a big problem, 
So describe it in Sacramento. First of all, homelessness is what motivated me to author Prop 63, another initiative, the Mental Health Services Act in 2004. It's generating $2.2 billion a year now and helping a lot of people. And now as mayor, the difference between being pro tem and mayor, um, pro tem is more powerful. Being mayor is a lot more visceral yeah. and close to the people. And so now the job is how do I take many of the tools that I worked on or even helped lead on, and how do I actually take them and, and get a result? The problem with homeless, there's many issues around homeless, but one of them is that we have not had sort of the political will to hold ourselves accountable to a volume number. In other words, I, in Sacramento, I call it the cutting the ribbon um, syndrome, where we cut a lot of ribbons, we celebrate new projects, 15 beds, 20 beds, and the nonprofits, of course, who do that work are heroes. But for leaders and government leaders, we need to hold ourselves accountable to helping to get thousands off the streets because that's what the people expect. And we can do it. Homelessness need not be hopelessness. What I see, we know what works, and that's what motivated our state legislation this year. It's assertive outreach. You don't give up on anybody. Treatment resistance may be half true, but it's only half true because we don't spend enough time working with someone to get them off the streets. It's case management. It's mental health services. It's temporary housing, triage, we call it, like navigation centers in San Francisco and permanent housing. And last... It's prevention and early intervention. We've got to invest money in helping someone who is one broken down car away I'm wondering, from becoming homeless. I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm sorry. Jerry Brown was, was a mayor, of yeah. course, uh, yeah. one of the many jobs he's held in public life. But I'm wondering, have, have you talked with him at all about, you know, dealing with homelessness as mayor? And, you know, now that he's governor again, I mean, is that an issue that, you know, it when you go— it doesn't seem like a natural issue for him to embrace. Yeah, and it's something that in general, as you know, I mean, redevelopment, you were there when the redevelopment agents yes. were done. I mean, housing in general has just been something the state hasn't really engaged on as forcefully. No, I the think. state has, I think, done a lot more around transportation infrastructure than housing infrastructure. And Governor Brown, I can't say that it has been a focus of his really over the course of his mayorship, but I will say this. I have never seen a May revision, which is was his May budget, that led with homelessness and mental health. It's what it did. And it was one-time money. And I talked to him today, and I just said, I really want to thank you because $500 million for cities is going to allow us to build, in our city, it's going to allow us to build multiple triage centers, na navigation centers like what they've done here with success, beginning success in San Francisco, congratulate the mayor and Jeff Kaczynski and everybody who is working on that. Well, uh, we're never uh, so uh, so prideful to not steal a, a great idea. <laughs> and that is the model. It is the model because there needs to be a bridge between the riverbank, the streets, and permanent housing. And this triage is crucial. That's where we're going to spend a lot of this money, in addition to pure prevention. Um and so I have talked to the governor about this. I think there is finally a, a sense that um, if we build the capacity to do all that it takes, we may not cure the problem, 
but we can make it demonstrably better. And you mentioned like holding yourselves accountable as public officials. I mean, what what do you want that to look like in your city or statewide? Because I agree with you, and I think it goes beyond homelessness. I mean, when uh, realignment was passed, for example, there was no mechanism to track whether it was actually helping, you know, with recidivism and things like that. So what I've done in my uh, city, and you know. Everybody has a different approach and different way of putting it. And some of my political consultants sort of frowned when I did this. But <laughs> I, I'm running for re-election. If I run for re-election in 2020, you know, I, I've committed to getting 2,000 people off the streets by 2020. And How many are there now, would you say? Well, the last point in time count um, about 3,500 chronically homeless people. And I thought it was an aggressive goal. But here's what I know about setting goals, not just for a mayor, but for society is that even if you don't reach the absolute goal, you're going to make much greater progress than if you force yourself to reach for a goal. Because otherwise, what we're doing is we're cutting ribbons, we're managing the problem, and as we manage it, it only gets worse. You know, a startling statistic out of the Chronicle series over the last couple of days is that more people are becoming homeless, newly homeless, then San Francisco is successfully actually getting off the street. What are we doing about that problem? We need rent stabilization, rental assistance for people who, you know, they lose a job, the rent goes up, they, their car breaks down, $1,000 at the right moment, the right time. We can save people's tenancies for, uh, for the long haul. We have to be thinking simply and creatively. Are you um, going to support that rent control measure that's on the statewide ballot? Well, I... I believe that um, local governments ought to have the ability to look at this issue on its own and we're grappling with it in Sacramento. So yes, I would f- I favor the statewide initiative, but I opposed my friends from the SEIU who uh, were circulating signatures in Sacramento for a local initiatives to impose across the board rent control because I want the authority to do it, but I don't want it to be draconian because I don't want it to have the unintended consequence of reducing the incentive for supply and for growth. And so we've got we've got to thread a needle. Not I mean, any, back to the not, initiative question. Not right? do it's... anything that's going to disincentivize new growth for affordable housing. At the same time, we have to help people who are suffering currently who can't afford to live where they live. Just a reminder, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Tonight, uh, our guest is Daryl Steinberg, used to be Senate President Pro Tem, now Mayor of Sacramento. Formerly Honorable. Yeah, formerly Honorable. <laughs> I um, think Honorable Mayor gets yeah, the Mayor's Honorable still Honorable, yes. Plus, course. Mr. Mayor rolls off the tongue much nicely. Mr. Mayor, Senator, Daryl's fine. And there's very little <laughs> distance when you're mayor between you and your constituents, well, it, right? that's what I'm saying. It is, it is different. I mean, I loved the legislature. I mean... In fact, I go back now because I, I have to, but I really, I don't go back just to go back. It's sacred to me. I, I loved the experience and the opportunity, but I like being mayor, too, because you you really are with the people. Yeah. Having been an executive, I just wonder if you view the role differently of even governor. Because, you know, when you came in, we kind of alluded to this, the, the state uh Arnold Schwarzenegger was the governor. The state was sort of in an economic free fall. Uh, there was huge budget deficits. I mean, do you have a different appreciation for how hard that job is? The the job as governor? Of course, I do. I mean, you know, I, pro tem isn't governor, but I certainly got a feel for what it's like and was in the middle of working with those governors to grapple with these 
unbelievable and unending deficits. And the choices are never easy. And, you know, I've learned over time, you talk about growing thick skin and, uh, and your calluses, right? If you're not doing this job in a way that some people are unhappy with you, you're not trying hard enough. Hard to imagine two different personalities more different than Jerry Brown and Arnold Schwarzenegger. What was the difference for you in dealing with them? You were pretty close with, uh, I, I think would, uh, Arnold had a, a nickname for you. Didn't he call you yes, Steiny? He called me Steiny, yes. Well, <laughs> I have great regard for him personally, and I think he did a lot of good things as governor. Um, you know, you think about celebrity politicians and compared to the guy in the White House now. It all Ar- seems so Arnold quaint Schwarzenegger now. was was a prince, and he was a good guy. But here's the way I would say it. I think Jerry Brown was a better governor um, because he is so schooled in in politics and so schooled in the art of governance and experience matters. And so I would say he was a much better governor, even if Governor Schwarzenegger was maybe a little bit more fun sometimes to work with. Yeah, I can imagine that those uh, (laughs) meetings in his office would have been a little different. Um, Well, we usually like to end with a fun question. I had read somewhere that when you were coming into the pro tem's office, you like to jog around the pocket and listen to NPR. I'm curious, like what 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 do you listen to now? Only every morning. Yeah. Uh, Do I? I listen it. I listen to. Here's what I do: NPR. Once in a while, sports radio around the Giants. And I listen to, I have Sirius XM, so I listen to Channel 20, the Springsteen channel. Wow. (laughs) I go back and I go between those three things, right? I mean, to me, life is simple. Politics, the Giants, Springsteen, curb your enthusiasm, (laughs) a good book. Your kids are in there somewhere. My, and of course, my <laughs> wife and my kids and my entire family there first. You were a big uh, Seinfeld fan. So the, I'm a big Seinfeld the, fan. Yeah. You kind yeah. of look like Jerry Seinfeld, just a little bit when you said just that. A little just bit. a little bit. He's, he's wealthier than I am. Just a slightly. Just a slightly. All right. Great. Well, Daryl Steinberg, thank you so much for joining us. I re- really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you, guys. So thank you for coming down. Well, that will do it for this week's edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. And to make sure you never miss an episode of The Breakdown, including our recent special on Justice Kennedy's retirement, you can check us out on Apple Podcasts. And uh, you know, while you're there, if you feel like rating and reviewing, giving us five stars, for example, maybe subscribe to the podcast. Go we ahead. We would totally be down with Go that. Go for it. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Seal Muller. Ethan Lindsay is our managing editor. And Holly Kernan is our vice president of news. I am Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. That is a wrap for this week's political breakdown from KQED. We'll see you next time, everybody. I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. 
They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 